Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep The Killers by Ernest Hemingway. First published in Scribner's Magazine, March 1927. I think I might have read this in high school or around that time. Um, I forgot about it, and then I remembered it. I like it. Uh, it's also... I like it, but I I also don't ever really want to read anybody else writing this ever again, if that makes sense. It's very different. It's very Hemingway, <laughs> I guess. Well, it, it is very Hemingway. Um what uh, <laughs> different from what? Um, yeah, I have a theory. Okay. So, um, but I, I don't know if this is correct. Hemingway. I remember when I first read Hemingway in high school, mm-hmm. which was closer to March 1927 than when you first read Hemingway in high school. But it was still not 1927 by a long shot. I remember that Hemingway um, had a way of, of, this is how I understood it at the time, just writing very simple sentences that were full of the facts of what's going on in the story. And I was having to figure out the fullness of what was going on in the story because he wouldn't give it all to me. Mm -hmm. And then what I found particularly distressing was that the stories always ended before they should end. Ah. That is, you know, it would get to the end and I would think, well, wait a minute, why is that the end? And, And he made me have to think more deeply about what a story could mean. Um, in that sense, um, I, I, you know, I don't want other people handling his stories because he's got a way of writing that's just, you know, if a story fits in his way of writing, it sort of feels like it doesn't fit in somebody else's way of writing. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's what I think of as maybe why one would say, I don't want somebody else writing this story. Uh, what do you mean when you say that this is different? I, to me, it's different from because Hemingway is at least it struck me when I first read him um, as different because he wasn't telling you enough. Uh, of course, because of Hemingway's enormous influence, many, many, many writers these days do exactly the same thing. Yes, yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, pretty snobbish when it comes to what kind of things I read. Uh, I'll read lots of nonfiction, but I don't like most fiction. Um in I sort of stick to a few genres in in uh, my fiction reading, um, and yet that's not true when I watch movies or TV shows. I'll watch a romantic comedy or a romance movie or a musical or pretty much any kind of film will make me you know I'm I, I'm a avid movie watcher of all genres. I like submarine movies. I like war movies. I like uh, westerns and dramas and thrillers I, I like everything but in fiction i find that um that's not the case at all um and and i think hemingway is very much 
sort of he is the template for a lot of the kind of movie writing that I like. So it's very dialogue heavy, almost all dialogue, very minimal description. Um, and that I think is it's exactly what you were saying. You know, it's except for the part where you said, you know, he cuts it off before the ending comes, I guess. Um, I like I like that aspect of him, and I like that he knows when to pull away and not tell anymore because he he lets a, a lot of room in for the actors, as it were, or at least the readers, um, like a good movie script can. Um, and there is a quote that's um, uh, attributed to Hemingway about this story, and he says that quote. The story probably had more left out of it than anything I ever wrote. I left out all of Chicago, which is hard to do in 2,951 words for the Swede. So um, what's missing from this story is a, is in a massive background. And it's been filled in many times in film versions, right? This this story has been filmed many times. I think the, the best example is actually the movie Pulp Fiction, if you've seen that, uh, which is... Yeah, it's not it's not an attributed uh, you know adaptation of this, but it is essentially uh, the filling out of every kind of connection that is not mentioned in this story. You've got a couple of hitmen or bad actors who are uh, on a job, and you've got a boxer who did something wrong, and and then it's, it, the story's over, and and the I guess the viewpoint character. Who is a uh, Nick Adams? That's that's the man, right? He's the stand-in for Ernest Hemingway, and apparently a lot of a lot of his short stories um, has to, you know, there's no real ca- character development for anybody. Everybody's sort of trapped in their universe, and he just his only thing is, I'm gonna get out of this town, and that's it. That's the whole story, basically, right? Mm-hmm. There's uh, 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 Wait a who has to get out of this town? Nick. Nick has to get out of this town. Okay. Okay. Just want to make sure. Um, because Swede's gonna die. Those hitmen are gonna keep being hitmen. The uh, nigger behind the counter is gonna have to keep cooking, right? He, everyone's trapped. Even even the landlady is not even there. The the lady who's the lady who's who says, oh, it's not my house, I just work for her, right? She's trapped there, too. Everyone's trapped, and Nick's the only one that's, you know, he, yeah, it doesn't even leave. He just I says, think, I, I think we should make, I think we should make, I, I want you to go on, I, but I do think we should make clear to the people who are listening to us that um, your use of the N-word was a quote yes. from the story. Yes. That the story uses that word repeatedly, and in fact, one of the, the issues I think we need to ask ourselves is what in 1927 Sam that word was meant to convey as opposed to what it would mean now, 90 years later with us discussing it. I think, uh, I mean, those mon- those monstrous hitmen, right? How much of that is an act and uh, uh, to make them brave and how much of that is them just being monsters is an interesting question. Um but the, what they're doing is monstrous. Um, so I, 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 they attack Nick and the the guy behind the other guy behind the count, George, um, by calling them bright boys, 
right? They don't give them names. They don't care about their names. Um, and by saying bright boy, they actually are saying dim boy, right? In a certain sense. Um, it, it, I think actually what they're saying is uh, these are people who think you can make your way in the world by using your mind, as opposed to us who realize that the really smart way to sure. make your way in the world is by using your muscle. Clever. Yeah, they, they think they're clever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, a lot of what, what I like about this story is that it's so hard. Um, this is hard boiled to the nth degree. It is a kind of a noir fiction story um, without the noir ending, right? It, we have to infer it. But it's a harsh reality. And, and that, that clip dialogue, the tiny sentences, the minimal description, and and the fact that it's not more horrific than it than it it doesn't show up as horrific as it is it it doesn't show as being as horrific as it really is right yeah the 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 people who everyone survives the story right in the the title sort of misleading um because they nobody gets killed in this story but we know that it's coming right that this is just a lucky escape in a certain brief time. And in fact, one of the one of the the killers who look like twins with their tight fitting black overcoats and derby hats mm-hmm. says, "You got lucky. You got lucky. Yep. We decided to leave you instead of something worse." I, I, the story, I think, is spectacularly carefully constructed. Though spareness of the sentences does not reflect an inability to find an adjective here or there, but rather minimalist construction. Mm -hmm. The story begins, the door of Henry's lunchroom opened and two men came in. They sat down at the counter. So, okay, two men came in. They sat at the counter. Um, that's, That's like nothing. It's like nothing. But if... The story is the killers. And if we come to know that these two men are the killers, um, yes, they don't wind up killing the person that they have come to kill this particular time. But that doesn't mean that they're not killers. In fact, um, what we find with their um, their casual use of uh, the N word and their references to Jews, uh, what we may think uh that is that they are related to Murder Incorporated, which was a Jewish Italian uh, murder for hire organized crime group that was flourishing in 1927. This was the time when there were a lot of Jewish um, nationally prominent Jewish criminals like Bugsy Siegel and Arnold Rothstein, who appears again uh, elliptically by allusion in The Great Gatsby, which also comes from the same period mm-hmm. uh, of publication. Uh, so these guys may be um, killers in the sense that a surgeon is a surgeon, even if he is not today cutting into flesh. Right. These guys are killers. But they may represent something else. That is, it may be that we always are killed because if the story is the killers, then the point is that, you know, they decide to leave and they leave. But as you say, our viewpoint character, Nick Adams, 
he then goes to warn Ole Anderson that the killers are after him. And he meets this boxer lying fully clothed on his bed. And the boxer, you know, didn't show up at, at the diner the way he normally does. He knows they're after him right now. And he's just sort of waiting until he's going to go out in the street because there's no evading the killers. So the last part of the story is um, Nick going back to talk to uh, George in Henry's. So George is the the guy running Henry's, Mm -hmm. the diner, just as Mrs. Bell is the woman running Mrs. Hirsch's, the the boarding house, Mm -hmm. I mean, the rooming house. Um, Everybody's working for somebody else. Every, in exactly, their name, right? Exactly. And and Ole Anderson is going to be killed because he double-crossed the people that he was working for. It's it's That is, he decided to work for himself and make some money. It, this is a story so deeply about a class, uh, race, economics. But it doesn't end. If it's about the killers, It's it, why doesn't it end when the killers leave town? Because it ends this way. Um I wonder what he, meaning Anderson, who said he's eventually going to go out and let himself be killed. Uh, I wonder what he did previously, Nick said, double cross somebody. That's what they kill them for. I'm going to get out of this town, Nick said. Yes, said George. That's a good thing to do. I can't stand to think about him waiting in the room and thinking he's going to get it. It's too damned awful. Well, said George, you better not think about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like to point out. Two things here. One that I think any reader of the story could get um, and one that perhaps not as much. Um, The thing that any reader of the story could get is that the killers are not just those two men who may or may not be from Murder Incorporated. The killers are class and race and economics. The killers are the social conditions that trammel most of us who aren't willing to just use violence to claim our own desires. And if we do use violence, as Ole Anderson did as a boxer, you still can wind up being killed by someone else who has even more violence. This is a story about the killers that is something that the young man, Nick Adams, right? Presumably he understands what innocence could be like. Adams can't stand it. And George, right, says, well, then you better not think about it. Now, I would like to point out that this ends with George saying, get out of town. Go ahead. Get out of town. Mm -hmm. In 1919, an enormous bestseller was Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson. It's a composite novel, many, many different stories in which George Willard is the viewpoint character, and he ties all these things in a sense together the way Nick Adams ties together the Nick Adams stories. Mm -hmm. At the end of Winesburg, Ohio, having looked at the life of this grotesque, as uh, Anderson calls his characters in uh, in the uh, introduction, there's people who are marked by a certain exaggerated sense of things, the way Hemingway's killers are grotesquely killers and Anderson is grotesquely a heavyweight boxer and so on. Um, 
having looked in on the lives of all of these grotesques, nominally as a cub reporter for the local paper, the last section, the last chapter, if you will, of Winesburg, Ohio, shows George Willard on the train heading to Chicago, Hmm. right, to try to make his life as a reporter. He intends to live by going to a bigger arena in which he can look on and see and manipulate the dying and, and struggles of others through his words. When you said that Nick Adams was a stand-in for Hemingway, I think this is not only a stand-in for Hemingway, Nick Adams who will grow up not to be a soldier but an ambulance driver who will write about the war mm-hmm. but not actually you know, do the violence himself. Hemingway, who will grow up to pride himself on being a good boxer. This is Nick Adams, who, in fact, looks at the violence around him and says, I've got to get out of this town. But in fact, he's off to Chicago, the place where Anderson got in trouble. And he's just following eight years later, George Willard's footsteps. So that's the part I think maybe not all readers would get that Mm. this is a story about Nick Adams and the things that are killers in his world. But the story of Nick Adams is a story very much of the post-World War One period of people from the Midwest like Hemingway and Anderson, Sherwood Anderson, trying to figure out what it means to find a place in this industrializing juggernaut of a class ridden racist economy that America is becoming. Yeah. Uh, The other thing is, you know, thinking about how, how it could be interpreted. um, What, what, when you do film a story like this and it's been done many times and sometimes credited, sometimes not, you, you end up romanticizing some of the, the, the parts that are actually, the opposite, right? So the killers typically end up being um, the, the viewpoint character, rather than the, you know they they're the ones who survived the first scenes, um, and we follow along with them. And we, maybe we don't like them as much, but we think they're cool, which you know is the case with Pulp Fiction. Um, here, it's the opposite. I get it. This is a kind of a um, reality horror story, right? The, the that these events could literally have happened is not out of the realm of possibility. There was a boxer who had almost the identical name, uh, not Andreson, but Anderson, um, and he was killed for almost exactly the reasons that are inferred in the are, are inferable from this story. Um, so there's a lot floating under the surface here that we bring out by filling in. You know, I like I like how it opens and we're immediately off our off our step, right? The door of Henry's lunchroom opened and two men came in. They sat down at the counter, and then, "What's yours?" George asked them. Now, maybe that was an expression back then. I don't think so. Um, I, I'm like, "What's yours? What? What's your like? It should be, what would you like to eat or?" Uh, would you like to order? <laughs> right. What's yours? Yeah. George asked them. Right. Well, okay. Where's Henry? We're always being put off our game. That that 
Hemingway's always pulling the rug out from under us at every point. And you can't live like that. And that's why we're right with Nick Adams when he says, I got to get out of this town. I got to get out of this story. Right. This is why I don't want more people to write this stuff. And I'm, I appreciate Hemingway's writing. I've read uh, every time I read one of his short stories, it, it's almost too powerful um, because it hurts. You know, it's a husband and wife go canoeing and you, you end up by the end of the story knowing that their marriage is over and almost nothing has happened in the story. It's just the way that the characters talk to each other and, you know, the tiny words that aren't dialogue, they all add up to a certain uh, inexorable understanding that things are over. And that is power. That is power writing. But in the hands of, um, I don't know, lesser people, uh, people with less empathic power in a certain sense, um, they're tools of destruction, (laughs) if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's astonishing, in a way, given how dialogue heavy the story is, as you point out, and given that the characters speak in ways that we we feel are colloquial for them, that we come away believing we can make the inferences, we can be be moved and and tormented by the underlying forces here in a language that's 90 years old. I mean, you know, I've read reread stories from the fifties and sixties mm. where the language seemed dated. Yep. You know, like, Oh, well, you know, nobody would say that now, but in reading this, you know, you just feel it is so present. Yep. The, let me read let me read some of this. Okay, so this is on uh 229. We know all that bright boy, Max said. Talk about something else. Ever go to the movies? Once in a while. No attribution here, right? You ought to go to the movies more. The movies are fine for a bright boy like you. We're killing him for a friend just to oblige a friend, bright boy. Shut up, said Al from the kitchen. You talk too goddamn much. Well, I got to keep bright boy amused, don't I, bright boy? I love how he turns that sentence from one person to the other inside the quote. You talk too damn much, Al said. The nigger and and my bright boy are amused by themselves. I got them tied up like a couple of girlfriends in a convent. I suppose you were in a convent. You never know. You were in a kosher convent. That's where you were. It's like, what the hell does that mean? I think there's, it's it, it's exactly like that snappy movie dialogue, right? And yet we know exactly what it means in a certain sense. It's about well, power. I think it, it's about power. I'm pushing you, and you're going to take it, right? Like that. And that's horror. It's a horror. Sorry. It is. And I, and and we everything you said about it is correct. But I also do believe that what we're seeing with Al and Max is uh, an Italian and a Jew sure. members of Murder Incorporated. Yeah, Al Capone is, you know, in the next town over. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why it's a kosher convent. He's, you know, the Italian is is ribbing the, the Jew, yep. who are both, in fact, killers. 
Uh, it's interesting that the use of language is so crucial here. Mm-hmm. Those two who are in the back, they are bound together like two girls in a convent. That suggests a certain kind of innocence. The two who are bound together are the white and the black. Mm-hmm. The guy who runs the place for Henry and the guy who cooks in the place for Henry. They are bound together. And in fact, they are race makes no difference yep. at that moment. And now at that moment when race makes absolutely no difference, not only are they bound together back to back, but their mouths are stuffed with towels so that they cannot speak. It seems to me that the, the, the inability to speak versus what it is that um, these guys do, they can say anything and get away with it, is vivid. Nick goes and does speak. He tells Ollie Anderson what's going on, and it is of absolutely no consequence. Mm-hmm. So the fact of violence in our world silences people, even when they can speak. And the spareness of the prose here is a reminder that what we really need is what has often been described as muscular prose yes. for Hemingway. Yes. Because if you don't punch through, you don't really get the meaning across against the enormity, to use your word, Jesse, the horror of the world. You know, there's uh, there's so little description that when it comes, uh, I take a special note of it. And the uh, just uh, this story is set in a very particular time. It's set not just in a year, but in the part of the day, right? It's The sun is going down. The, the lights are coming on. And as he walks to the rooming house, uh, we get a repeated description, uh, a repeated word to describe the light. And it's arc light, right? These arc lights across the, uh, you know, lighting up the streets. And I... I I'm not 100% an expert on, on lighting at the time, but I can tell you that it has a particular look to it. And that bright boy line, right, it's like there's brightness in the darkness. Um, when he gets there, it doesn't, it doesn't pay off in the way that he had hoped, and he's not even sure what the payoff would be, right? George is going to stay in the town, it sounds like. He's not leaving. Where are the cops in this story? They don't exist. Right? It's not even like nobody would go for that. It's ridiculous. Indeed, Nick asks Ollie, you know, should I go to the police? And Ollie says it wouldn't do any good. No, they're, you know, they're corrupt. And, and they this is care. the era of Al Capone. I mean, this, right? I mean, the, the police are not reliable protectors. <laughs> That's right. They're they're getting paid and they, you know, everything is out of whack. You know, you the things you think even the the things you think you can rely on, you can't rely on. Um, It's five o'clock. You know, when when one of the killers says, I want to eat, you know, and he says, well, George says that you can have this at six. And the guy says, well, it's five. And I'm sorry, he says he says I wanted at six. He says, well, it's five. George says it's five. And the guy says the killer says it says five twenty. And George says the clock is 20 minutes slow. Right. Right. 
everything in this town yeah. is is less reliable than you want it to be. And there's no reason not to think that this town is exactly connected with Chicago. And Chicago is a metropolis at the heart of America. I, Nothing I, is reliable. I want to. I want to read this section. Um, it's just a. It's it's just a tiny little description that's in between some dialogue. He straightened his coat and his gloved hands. So long, bright boy. He said to George, "You got a lot of luck." This is on page two thirty. That's the truth, Max said. You ought to play the races, bright boy. And then this description here. The two of them went out the door. George watched them through the window, pass under the arc light, and cross the street. In their tight overcoats and derby hats, they looked like a vaudeville team. George went back through the swinging door into the kitchen and untied Nick and the cook. So, it's a com- it's a comedy show, right? <laughs> Where nobody's laughing. Yeah. It is uh, it is dark dark humor. And you see that in um, in that Quentin Tarantino movie, right? They have the uniform, right? It's not a derby hat in that case. It's it's just black suits, white shirt, black tie, right? It's a uniform, and they're interchangeable. They're 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 on a team, right? Except in uh, Pulp Fiction, instead of the team being an Italian and a Jew, it's a black and a white, right? And nobody's it's amazing how that story can 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 be in its spirit brought forward all those years it's, and, and still affect us. And and it's the dial it's you know Quentin Tarantino's ear is that dialogue. It's movie dialogue. That's why why it sounds so right, even though it's not strictly speaking actually an adaptation. Um, but it's it's he's got the he's. He's got the ear, and that's why I, I, I love watching Quentin Tarantino movies because he's like a Hemingway for the screen. He knows the dialogue. He's got a, something to say. His his uh, pitch is different, right? He's his angle's different. He he does do comedy. I I don't remember, you know, uh, I, I've never laughed in an Ernest Hemingway story. I I grimace, but I don't think I've ever laughed. Well, I can actually think of a few places, but that that, that doesn't matter. Your point is is well taken. Um, and I guess what you're saying is um, Quentin Tarantino proves that when we read a Hemingway story and Hemingway polished them all, um, there's always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.